Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> Originally recorded on Sunday the 7th of September 2014, the Disney specials continue with Pocahontas. Daughter of a chief. She has her mother's spirit. She goes wherever the wind takes her. Come down here! And she lived a life of freedom. No! Not that way! Watch out! Come on, lads! Steady on your course! He was an explorer, searching for adventure in a new land. Come on, man. We didn't come all this way just to look at it. Let us hope they do not intend to stay. I'm counting on you to make sure those heathens don't disrupt our mission. I. I. I made it myself. But though their worlds were very different... These pale visitors are strange to us. No one is to go near them. Their destinies were one. Wow. Ooh, we're going to talk about that. From Walt Disney Pictures comes the story of an American legend. Who are you? Pocahontas. Welcome back as we continue the history of Disney's theatrical animation. Today we're handling one of the more contentious and divisive installments in the 90s renaissance. To discuss Pocahontas, welcome back Mr. Daniel Floyd of Extra Credits. Hello. And we have another guest this week, Name Chai who featured previously on our Iron Giant podcast. Hi. So this story starts not with a book, but a painting of the Virginia Company about to set out from England. Now, do you guys think this was a deliberate decision to establish a different tone from the usual storybook fairy tale? I don't think they necessarily wanted to distance themselves too much from that. It's still the same device, if you think about it. It's just a different format. No. Um, which is something that they've changed up before. You've had... Um, the Beauty and the Beast starts with the stained glass window, doesn't it? Exactly. You've, you've got the classic storybooks, you've got the stained glass window. Aladdin, it's an Arabian night the, fairy exactly, tale through yeah. word of mouth. That's right, yeah. Um, so to, to say that, to basically say um, this is how we tell the story of actual events through paintings and, um, uh, you know, other evidence is not a wild departure from their previous methods. I suppose they um, they could have actually started like based on a true story or something like that, which would have been like their first. Uh, they mentioned it's the first time they've ever actually done this with people who are actually genuinely did walk the earth and were buried. Um, the person who said that was forgetting Robin Hood and King Arthur, both of whom there is evidence to suggest existed. So a lot more of their story is much more folklore based. Oh yeah, by comparison, and Pocahontas is very much kind of in that sort of folklore sort of historical like a real person around whom many of the stories may or may not be true it's really hard to tell it may have be that saying especially because they do this typical disney thing where they deviate very far from the source material to tell the story they essentially want to yeah saying based on a true story might have been a little bit um dishonest <laughs> but, yep that's a word um now name actually you've you've been listening to the shows as i've been putting them in the dropbox right yep did you hear the peter pan one 
Uh, yeah. Do you remember me just basically going off on one for uh, regarding the uh, treatment of the Disney back in, what would this have been, the 50s of uh, Native Americans? Yep. Yeah. You are of Native American lineage, is that correct? Yes, I am. Okay. Now, I don't necessarily expect you to get fired up in the same exact uh, manner as me. In fact, as I recall, you were a bit, a bit more cool about it. There's a specific reason why you asked to come on the Pocahontas show, right? Well... Being a Native American, I don't speak for everybody. Mm -hmm. There's an unbalance with these two Disney movies of Peter Pan and Pocahontas. With Peter Pan, you have the utmost stereotype of making them look like fairy tale characters. With Pocahontas, I don't feel like the Indian tribes are being portrayed uh, realistically. I don't. I, I think there's an exaggeration of the best qualities as opposed to an exaggeration of the quote-unquote worst ones. They're portrayed as, as people who don't have any problems whatsoever, and the only reason why their lives are terrible is because white men came to destroy their land. But the reality of the situation is they fought with other Indians a lot. There was war. There was, to a lesser extent than white people, a battle for land. That doesn't really come across in this movie. Somewhat oversimplified. Yes. There is a throwaway line towards the very beginning that kind of hints at that, where he, they come back and he says that somebody has been defeated. Um, but you're absolutely right. That's that's it. There's you know no further mention of any, or even other tribes in that area. Mm -hmm. The reason why I'm more fine with that kind of thing in Peter Pan than this is Peter Pan and Neverland is a imaginary place. Yeah. So with with fantasy characters you can't have stereotypes. But with with Pocahontas specifically, it's not a fairy tale. It's not supposed to be. It's it's real historical people. Mm. Like like you said earlier, they're they're people that did walk the earth. And I I wonder sometimes if Pocahontas and, and John Smith were around today and they were sat down to watch this movie, what would they think of it i was surprised actually when i saw uh, in one of the uh, behind the scenes things russell means the guy who plays is, is it poatum the uh, the chief yeah. yes and he was getting quite emotional about it uh, one of the, the greatest depictions of native americans that he had seen in cinema maybe the greatest and this is in the years following dances with wolves he was obviously just telling the truth as he saw it at that point clearly very pleased at, how, at what had been presented there were definitely other people in um, the, the Native American community and outside it who called foul and, and uh, suggested that it was a naive depiction. At, at best, a naive depiction. At uh, worst, deliberate misinformation. I wonder if some of his respect for uh, Disney's portrayal comes a lot from just the attention to detail in mm. Showing the culture and the way they live, down to the fine details of all of all of their homes face the same way. Just lots of like, very yeah, they all face careful, east. Yeah. yeah, like just lots of very careful attentiveness to lifestyle and mm -hmm. culture, while presenting a very oversimplified, somewhat naive, overly glamorized, celebratory mm -hmm. look at the way of life. Like, like everything about this tribe seems perfect and in complete balance with the world around them and just a complete uh, utopia society that is completely ruined by <laughs> European settlers and if only that hadn't happened it, it is very naive and oversimplified and kind of a childlike perspective of the way things played out At, watching through it I was making notes the whole way through and everything I had to say actually involved 
the process of events, not the animation, not the technical side of it, which is absolutely beautiful. The, the, the film itself, uh, in animation terms, is a triumph. Uh, it is. It's one of the best-looking Disney films, it's, it's gorgeous. period. I, I do hope we have time throughout this, or so we make time to, to talk about what it gets absolutely right. It's slight contentious aspects, a possibly more meatier subject to discuss. Uh, it reminds me of two other films, um, Dances with Wolves, which I mentioned before, and Avatar, which a lot of people labelled as just being Pocahontas with blue people or uh, Dances with Smurfs. I mean, of the three of them, Dances with Wolves is the most accurate, I suppose, in, in terms of that they, it shows tribal warfare, it shows a lot of mistrust to be you know early on. I think what it comes down to is Pocahontas presents a world where all the men, and it's all men, are presented as being childlike and not harboring any uh, feeling negative feelings of their own but being fed prejudice by Radcliffe and to a degree by Poetan specifically the sailors they're cheerfully racist but in a kind of you know if I see an Indian I'll shoot it but it's done in a, in a not particularly ugly way just in a kind of a, a childish way and this is when naivety can be bone chilling one of the toughest things in the world is to present a character that happens to have racist traits but is also relatable. So what they ended up doing was using Radcliffe as a receptacle of uh, racism. But it's almost like his heart isn't even really in that. He's using prejudice and racism as a way to get what he wants. Yeah, he's much more a manipulator than a bloodthirsty type. Yeah. So it's almost like no one in this is really, truly racist. You've just got the misguided and ignorant who aren't really racist, they just don't understand what they're saying. And you've got the greedy who are shepherding that. This is dodgy ground, guys. Well, how would you define really, truly racist, though? Because The guy in uh, Avatar, the, the evil general, he just, he loathes these, uh, these well, tribes. Well, technically, he only loathes them because they're stood between him and what he wants, which you could say is a similar thing about Radcliffe. Okay, Adam Baldwin in Full Metal Jacket. All f***ing He represents some of the very worst that humanity has to offer. <sighs> what you're describing with this is something that in a portrayal for children mm. while I don't necessarily think that they made the right choices every time I think I can kind of see what was behind a lot of them because ultimately Disney does oversimplify we know that to expect Pocahontas to suddenly be um, a, a a very multi-textural um, carefully considered adult concept film um, is possibly expecting a little bit too much of them. And I think one of the things that it falls down on is actually that it, they, they did try to put in too many layers for little children to really grasp. And that's partly why you have to then have these very cutesy animal creatures, because you need something to keep the young children engaged. Yeah. They have actually managed the racism angle, and they managed it very shortly after Pocahontas. Lion King 2... It's actually, it's riven with prejudice from characters that you're supposed to be sympathetic to. The, uh, the outsiders, it's not specifically a race, although The Lion King does actually have anti-hyena anti and anti-lion sentiment throughout it uh, in the first one. The second one is basically anybody who's uh, an outsider and has basically been banished, they're seen as less than fit for the Pride Lands, and that is in there. Mm. So, so they can do it. 
but but yeah this is this is the thing though maybe that choosing to express that through the metaphor of the animals may have made it a little bit easier for them than trying to paste it very uncomfortably on an existing and extremely complex historical situation yeah there's a certain villain in uh, an upcoming Disney movie that hasn't been looked at yet who I would define as a true racist. Clayton? Frollo. Frollo. I was thinking the same thing, yeah. actually. Uh, yeah. yeah. He, he's a person that hates a, a complete group of people just because they get in the way of his own ideals. And he never even makes an attempt to examine his ideals and see if there's something wrong with them. Yeah. Okay, right. So let's move slightly on to to other aspects of Pocahontas and we'll definitely be coming back to racial issues and history and the handling thereof. First film this actually reminded me of... Okay, right. Can anyone uh, tell me a film that the animation style at least reminded them of, at least especially early on that that first struck you? I I wonder if it corresponds with mine. I see a bit of Sleeping Beauty in there. Yes! Thank you! (laughs) And both in the lots of... uh, relatively realistically drawn human characters, but also in the very angular look to uh, a lot of their designs, which I quite like. I'm probably going to use an inordinate amount of words examining what doesn't work about this movie, which seems a bit unfair because I actually do really like it despite these flaws. It's just that the weaknesses are really hard to pinpoint and diagnose underneath all this really well-presented, beautiful stuff. So it takes a lot of time to exist. I've been spending hours this weekend trying to figure out what it is at that the entire time I'm watching this doesn't feel like it's quite gelling the way these other great Renaissance Disney films have. But it has to be said like how beautiful this movie is that I love their choice to use so much blue and pink in the palette that even though they're portraying a semi-realistic North American landscape with a, which should have mostly green and a good bit of yellow and brown as well, that they pull in so many blues and pinks really just makes it feel grander and more fantastical and also the way they pull in a lot of native american spiritual culture and tradition and portray it in this sort of abstract fantasy imagery way just it's a really cool design choice and lends it this much larger than life more folktale borderline fairy tale Mm. aspect which is i think a great way to go about it and just results in one of the most beautiful movies they've made I've just thought of a uh, uh, an example of a xenophobic character just from reading through the uh, the, the cast. Flit. <laughs> he actually the, the the hummingbird is mistrustful, seemingly down to his core of outsiders. Not simply that he's been told he just plain doesn't trust John Smith, and it takes him a long time to warm up to that. And he and Miko um, eventually bonding with Percy the dog. Uh, it's like they go through like a mini version of the events of the film themselves. I agree. That's. I think the dog actually has the most defined, widest story arc out of all of the characters. Jeez, yeah, he has an arc. He changes. Exactly, which is unlike a lot of the other characters in the movie. Especially John Smith, if you remove a certain song. Yep. yep. Which they did. Which they did, <laughs> thanks to test audiences. Okay, right. Uh, so Miko and Flit actually are kind of like Bagheera and Baloo uh, while I was watching because one of them's all business and trying to keep people out of trouble and the other one's all about, well, uh, fun and partying and eating. They were originally going to talk. In fact, there, were a lot, there was going to be a talking turkey as well. Percy was going to talk and they didn't. Why do you think they stopped them talking? I suspect uh, for one part the fact that one 
such character that was supposed to be involved would was going to be voiced by John Candy, who died. So uh, oh, was he going to so play the turkey? He was going to play the turkey. So that kind of put a uh, that kind of threw a wrench in that plan. But I suspect also, and this is probably something I'm going to be bringing up a lot, but there is a sort of gravitas that they are approaching this hmm. film with in its story. And I suspect they felt that, especially because they were portraying a fairly realistic, grounded, ac actually historically based setting, yeah. that the talking animals thing would, the, the typical Disney thing would have undermined that and felt a little like it clashed a bit too much. Yeah, I can't actually imagine Ariel. Sorry, Pocahontas talking to uh, Scuttle or Flounder in in the same way that Ariel does, and and keep this tone. It's kind of a strange choice considering there's a talking tree. Yeah, address having a talking tree as sort of a spiritual being tied to the much more literally portrayed spiritual side of Native American culture. Like that one, I can kind of buy, but having a we're going to be talking about another movie that has talking sidekicks of course, in a little course, bit yeah. and that uh, is a prime example of the kind of tonal clash you can have <laughs> if not carefully if not very carefully measured Agreed. and I think dropping the talking animals bit from this was a pretty good call now that you mention uh, Grandmother Willow I think I kind of see her more as a, an like Pocahontas' actual grandmother only she happens to be a tree as opposed to her being a tree that suddenly sprang to life one day it's it's weird um, in, in terms of, of, of what the difference is between her and an actual raccoon that appears to have a very similar personality to a human um, but I think we've referred repeatedly forwards to Pocahontas throughout this. I think specifically when I say we, I mean me, in terms of how your talking animals or your, 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 your pets, your critters, can actually distract from proceedings. I don't know what Pocahontas would be like without them. Probably a lot more po-faced, or a lot more straight-laced, but um, I do know that with them there, there are a few too many times when something serious is going on and they're there buffooning around and it's a little too far you know when i mentioned during aladdin they uh they put in bits with a little junk with iago or abu to keep things grounded when the plot's going on in this it almost seems like they put the plot off screen and we focus on the frigging raccoon um <laughs> it's just one too many times maybe it's true and, and one of the additional weaknesses i think in the way that they're presented is that it with abu uh, being around Aladdin, Abu, it's a comedy movie, so he fits a little bit better. But, but his antics are just part of why he's there. Like his relationship, the way Aladdin interacts with him, also informs us about who Aladdin is. Yeah. Well, Aladdin and, needs someone to talk to, otherwise he's and Aladdin needs somebody to talk to, even if he has someone who does who only kind of talks back. Yeah. The like Miko and Flit don't feel like they really inform us much on who Pocahontas is. They seem to be just two creatures that sort of follow her around. Which For the kids, is, let's face it. Yeah, which is fine. But sometimes their presence also kind of undermines her character a little bit. Uh, Carrie pointed out um, while we were watching that uh, how much more tense would it be to see Pocahontas stealthily approaching the English landing site by herself without any companions yeah. with her? Like, how brave, how much more brave does she seem if she's completely alone, like without any plucky animals to pop up and distract the distract John Smith when he starts approaching the bush he's hiding in and stuff like that, without them there, she gets to seem all the more impressive in the way she acts. Yeah, that scene you described reminds me of Tarzan. 
Yeah, agreed. It's when yeah, she's stealthily creeping around, especially when um he's moved into inland and she's still stalking him in that same kind of way that Tarzan has has been kind of ninjaing around the jungle. I think part of the issue with this is that the character of Pocahontas herself is remarkably inconsistent throughout this film. Um, they've, I mean, in a way, I disagree a little bit about the presence of uh, Miko and Flit distracting from her character because they're obviously there to reinforce those sides of her character. You know, you've got Flit, who's the uh, the the um, straight and narrow path conscience um individual who's trying to make her be wary and demonstrate that she's cautious and there's there's that side of her that has um, a, a genuine wariness about how she goes forward and then you've got Miko who's this total little id running around cramming his face with biscuits <laughs> and berries and um, generally being very easily distractible and that scene where her father's trying to um, impart great wisdom as he sees it to her and she's getting her mind and the audience's mind because that's where the camera is is on Miko messing around with all the pottery mm. that's because it, 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 I think what they're trying to get across is that's how Pocahontas is, is feeling she's very easily distractible and I think the biggest mistake they made with this was they made her too old there's fairly minimal uh, production pieces on this unfortunately but one thing that they kept coming back to was we wanted to make her um, more of a woman we wanted to make her um, more with more of a noble bearing we wanted to make her more mature and more understanding of the world around her than Than previous Disney heroines exactly Belle or or Ariel and Jasmine had all been um, relatively young and and sort of maybe mid to to, uh, late teens but Pocahontas is the one most sensibly represented as a child because they're modeling her on a historical character and all these stories about her happened when she was what 11 10 or 11 12 yeah so to to make that choice to make her older with a character that you're basing on somebody who was very definitely younger seems a really really odd decision to me it was driven by and i think i think it was also a misguided choice i completely agree uh, at the time Mike Gabriel pitched Pocahontas as a story, the, the Disney folks had been kind of stewing around the idea of making some sort of Romeo and Juliet-ish story. And uh, so when he pitched this film, they kind of saw that as an opportunity to like, all right, well, we can kind of modify this and we can sort of combine these ideas, which I think was probably a misguided idea. For, for one, because it necessitates deviating very heavily from the few actual facts we know about the Pocahontas story. Mm-hmm. We, don't ha- we don't have that many. But I think also, in addition to what you were saying, rooting the story in a love at first sight encounter is maybe at least one of the less interesting directions to go. Yeah. Like, like the, the story of Pocahontas single-handedly preventing a bloodbath between two clashing cultures and exploring the kind of incredible person that could actually achieve that is already super interesting. And having her motivation boil down to because I love him is fine, but somewhat less i don't know especially since because i love him is charged so much with because he's very different yeah because really that's what it comes down to she falls in love with him because he is very different to uh, the men that are around uh, her and she is drawn to this exotic handsome chap without really knowing much of anything about him and then when he she does start to get to know him he turns out to be kind of a jerk 
So it's I, I it also isn't really sold in terms of how much she could really fall for him when when she starts to really get to know him because uh, you know I know she's a teenager but to that end she's less of a woman she's so, some, she's somewhere trapped between this 12-year-old girl exemplified by these animals which sort of operate outside her like demons in the uh, his dark materials universe which by the way from here reading the descriptions of her as a character as a child she was like Lyra Balakwa, if you guys have ever read those books, in terms of being uh, compassionate but determined, possibly somewhat obtuse as well, but uh, not necessarily your cute Disney. I mean, she's almost like Vanellope von Schweet is closer to the actual Pocahontas than this one. Um, Pocahontas itself is a nickname, wasn't her actual name, and it yeah. means little mischief, which is a weird thing to apply to a woman in her 20s. I've, I've read Little Wanton, which uh, it, it means different things depending on translation. Yeah. But um, yeah, the. So yeah, she's caught between the child and then you've got the teenager girl falling in love immediately. And then you've got the woman because she does have a very grown up bearing. When she stands up in the waterfall, she is absolutely an image of female mystique and perfection at the same time and but but she has this worldly wisdom in her eyes at that stage and they're they're selling you again a different character but that again makes the the fact that they've combined that particular story with a um a historical storyline featuring Native American characters is a wee bit uncomfortable because they've got this uh, this image of supposed, um, you know, exotic beauty, and but she's still slender, so she's still got the proportions that you would expect from a, a, um, a classic Western, um, sorry, big. white Western um, appeal. Um, and the long flowing black hair and the, the features and the almond shaped eyes. She's very, very stereotypical Native American princess. And to make that exotic beauty and then make her an exotic beauty, even surrounded by her own people, that scene, I was watching at this time thinking, right, the idea here is that John Smith puts his rifle down because he realizes she's not a threat. He seems to realise that based on two things. She's female and he fancies her. <laughs> if she'd been Cocoam, standing there, not threatening him, just standing there, he'd have put a bullet in him, let's face it. What I love most about rivers is he can't step in the same river twice. Water's always changing, always flowing. But people, I guess, can't live like that. We all must pay a price. To be safe, we lose our chance of ever knowing what's around the river bend, waiting just around the river bend. I look once more just around the river bend, beyond the shore, where the gulls fly free. Don't know what for. What I dream the day might send. Just around the river bend For me Coming for me I feel it there beyond those trees Or right behind these waterfalls Can I ignore that sound of distant drumming For a handsome sturdy husband Who builds handsome sturdy walls And never dreams that something might be coming Just around the river bend 
Can you guys think of any Disney movie? There's been several like mother-daughter relationships and sister-sister relationships, but can you guys think of a brother-sister Disney relationship? Oh, bloody hell. Um, Mary Poppins. (laughs) (laughs) That's a cheat. It's not really the focus at all. When Pocahontas, if you have her as a 12-year-old character like she was in history, the way that the history actually played out it was John Smith was adopted into the tribe as Pocahontas's brother. Mm. And that would have been a much more interesting Disney movie uh, simply due to the fact that it hadn't been explored before. Mm. Yeah, I think people they, would have gotten made... squeamish since he'd have been 28 and she'd have been 12. Yeah, but if you, if you can put that across in the relationship and make him – um, it made the focus of it her curiosity about the English culture and the English ways and have him basically not behave like a jerk <laughs> um, and, you know, be kind to her and teach her things, I think they could have carried that relationship across quite well. I have a bit of a question for you guys because this is something I was noticing, but I don't know if it's just me. I'm, I found that watching and i think this is actually what maybe one of the real core problems that keeps the film from functioning as it is laid out is that pocahontas and john smith both feel a bit flat yes very very scripted romance there's there's a gravitas to the way that pocahontas as a film is presented that i think keeps the characters from being relatable because when you're reading behind the scenes stuff you see so many people in the production talking about the prestige of this project and the grandness of the story and its historically based roots and how important it is to them to try to capture that and get it right. And you get the sense that they know they're working on a really important project, telling this important story about these important people. And you watch the movie and the characters feel flat and uninteresting somehow. And it's not that they're presented like as perfect, flawless icons, but there is this feeling of them both being on a distant pedestal somehow. Uh, and I get the same feeling watching a lot of other historically based films. It's it's like there's a timidness to the way that the movie presents them. Like like the movie is scared to make any bold creative choices with them as characters. Yeah. Be- so I they said end up feeling simultaneously So they end up feeling simultaneously super important and super bland at the same time. I, I said my uh, rationale was that they didn't want to do anything like uh, you know how Tangled goes into the psychology of the rela- the complex shades of grey relationship, um, and and then even technically the relationship between Rapunzel and uh, uh, Flynn it certainly isn't straightforward, uh, but they, it seemed like they got squeamish and cold feet about 
implying anything other than very simple, straightforward emotions for these characters. It's yeah, I, I get much the same feeling. It and it ends up feeling like watching a bust of a historical figure acting on screen. Like no, you can't peer yeah. through the marble to see the actual person underneath there. I think you made a very fine point at the beginning, Dan, about the idea of them trying to straitjacket these uh, the, the historical facts that they used into the story that they already had in mind. And it it is a little frustrating because they could have just made a story about a Native American girl who encountered white settlers. There were rather a lot of them. Mm. Um, but presumably they wanted to use the Pocahontas name to try and get the audience. It, it does seem weird the places that they have tried so very hard to stay true to the reality when so much of the rest of the film is intentionally deviating from the reality of it. And it it feels like it's kind of of two minds and it isn't completely (laughs) consistent in the way it wants to go. We are only passing through Eastery. This is improved Eastery. This makes the, um, the decision to have this sort of slightly more adult romantic relationship weird as well because that's not really a classic disney love story that's true they haven't told have they told any older than teenage love stories between actual human characters that aren't mice fix it felix jr <laughs> and okay. calhoun but yeah. 50 calhoun. films to get there <laughs> ah, right there you go um wreck it ralph and vanellope Oh, yeah, relationship. Yeah. Brother, sister. That's it's, totally it's, it. It's kind of father, daughter, uncle, niece, but yeah. Wolverine. Wolverine, yeah. <laughs> Hulky. But, <laughs> but if you look at the um, the previous romantic relationships that they've presented, they've never before that I can think of had one where the people involved in the relationship went, you know what, the circumstances of our lives are just not compatible with us being together. And that is a very grown-up choice to make. Yeah. It's very unusual as well that, in, that it's a Disney film with a really sad ending. I mean, Sharon, you said, oh, well, you know, she's choosing to be with her people. It's bittersweet at best, but there really aren't many Disney films that leave you kind of somber at the end. And so it didn't do very well. See, to me, I don't necessarily see that as a, as a sad ending. Yes, it's bittersweet, but ultimately, in my head, she's choosing to stay to become a leader of her people, which okay. is... Okay, but uh, try to think like an audience here. Rob, I can't! Think outside yourself, <laughs> seriously. This is, this is a huge, important reason why this made $346 million relative to, say, oh, I don't know, The Lion King? Hold on, let's check that one, shall we? Ooh. 987 million. It just, it doesn't happen often that Disney Disney leave you um, melancholy. Hmm. It's it's not unambiguously triumphant. Yeah. And it's uh, melodramatic, I suppose is the best way of putting it. But they were trying to do a Broadway musical and a lot of Broadway musicals really do have that melodramatic ending where it's not... Uh, wonderful uh, Phantom of the Opera which also plays in with um, uh, I mean Quasimodo has a wonderful triumphant ending but it's not perfect either he doesn't get the girl yep I feel like the movie the, the Pocahontas uh, I feel like it just stops I don't see any real finality to it there's no uh, decisions that the characters really have come to Pocahontas kind of has to stay because what's she going to do with John Smith? John Smith has to go because he's been badly hurt. 
Um, so it's like the plot is put on hold, um, like almost Harry Potter, Deathly Hallows Part One. Like, yeah. Just... Well, uh, what what was the actual history of it? She um, she prevented the the war between the tribes, but then did she decide to go and uh, spend and live with the English for some time in Jamestown? Well, yeah, you tell I, Okay, uh, John Smith actually was hurt. Uh, it, it took place some time after certain events. I don't know. But he was John Smith for quite a long time. Yeah, John Smith was hurt, and he went back to to you know Europe. And um, Pocahontas, this is many years down the line, actually married a a, a sophisticated Englishman, John Ross, um, played by Ben yeah, Zane in the uh, straight to video sequel uh, Journey to the New World. She was living with John Rolfe in, in England and Europe for, for years. And then she realized that John Smith had actually been alive all these years. Uh, yeah. She thought that he had previously died from those injuries. That, um, so when John Smith came to visit Pocahontas, Pocahontas is like, how could you do this to me? How, yeah. how can you be alive after all these years? That's not fair. And um, uh, shortly after she, she died of a disease but a lot of that probably was due to depression well at that point they were actually journeying back to the new world and it was on a ship right. at the time but yeah here's the thing and this is the way the reason the ending bugs me so much um i assume yeah that, that john was hurt and, and try, had to return but being on a ship was really no joke in those days it was about the worst conditions you could be on the environment was constantly moving the supplies were always low everyone basically had to get by on just about the bare minimum especially as they were coming away from a trip rather than going to it disease and various other mental conditions were uh, rife at the time it's really the last place you want to be suffering from a bullet wound on and when you get back to England the best thing they're going to do is stick a leech on it they really did didn't have that good a medical service in England back in those days to make it significantly better than just having it tended to by people in Jamestown. I, I don't get the ending here. John's been John's basically going to die of sepsis when he's like two days into the journey. It but, apparently worked. I mean, even historically, <laughs> yeah. he went back and he stayed alive. Maybe he wouldn't have died if he'd stayed. Possibly John the Smith circumstances of his injury were slightly different, but uh, yeah. But yeah, it's, it's 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 a weird kind of ending because it, it leaves you sad over the fact that they can't be together in the immediate, but it always makes me just well up at seeing the, uh, the, the beginnings of the death of a whole civilization, or at least the great diminishing of an entire civilization. And they end it on kind of like focusing on Pocahontas and uh, John Smith. And it, it Honestly, at this point, these guys are so fictionalized and so steered by the story that they're being wound up in that it's really difficult to see their plight in relation to the real one. Not to marginalize the historical characters, but there was just a lot more at stake here, which, because of their focus, uh, gets kind of sidelined. Yeah, that ends up being another thing that kind of nags at me as I watch the movie. And I don't know if it's fair to blame the movie for that, but I mean, the, the film does end with Pocahontas and Smith having successfully forged a peace between the settlers and the tribe, at least for now, with a general sense kind of at the end of a lesson was learned and the crisis was averted. It's in a, I mean, it's a good lesson. But as a viewer, knowing the reality of the ultimate historical outcome of those conflicts, something about it 
something about having that semi happily ever after note, even though they're going their separate ways with that boy that was close, but goodness prevailed without any acknowledgement of the larger picture of what's to follow. Again, it doesn't feel fair to blame the movie because it's not telling that grander, that larger, sadder story. It's telling a very smaller, focused one about these characters, but it's still a hard bit of information to ignore while I watch. Yeah. Because the other thing that's uh, that's somewhat objectionable is the Savages song, where you know it, both sides are basically just as bad as each other and decided to go and attack each other because of what their elders say and because they're they're shoved towards each other and then that that ugly side of them is being fostered it's really not as simple as six of one half a dozen of the other in this case and um when chief poetan has to decide do i crack his brains in or do i listen to nature and um and thankfully the native american decided not to crack his head open and you know everything was good after that so anyway and we're moving on no 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 no. everything was not good after that (laughs) Sorry. You think I'm an ignorant savage And you've been so many places I guess it must be so But still I cannot see If the savage one is me How can there be so much that you don't know You don't know Whatever land you land on The earth is just a dead thing you can claim But I know every rock and tree and creature Has a life, has a spirit, has a name You think the only people who are people Are the people who look and think like you But if you walk the footsteps of a stranger You'll learn things you never knew, you never knew. Have you ever heard the wolf cry to the blue corn moon? Or ask the grinning bobcat why he grinned? Can you sing with all the voices of the mountain? Can you paint with all the colors of the wind? Can you paint with all the colors of the wind?
Like they're not telling it, making a documentary clearly, <laughs> but, but so like you, they can be excused for deviating from the truth now and then. But they are. It is still set in a real place where real things happened and mm. real things that are hard to ignore. <laughs> that uh, it it makes it very very difficult to ignore that knowledge, even when the film doesn't decides it doesn't want to address it specifically. But even if you're a child watching this, it's not exactly a ton of fun either. So who exactly is this film for? People who are adults and appreciate the melodrama of um, uh, Broadway musicals but don't want to think too deeply about the history behind it would appear to be that. Which is an uncomfortable combination like Pocahontas's characteristics. You've got some very childlike elements combined with some very mature elements and quite yeah. frequently they clash. There's another moment that kind of bugs me which is um, when he speaks to her and she doesn't understand him and then it uh, reprises the listen with your heart you will understand and then suddenly she gets a friggin' Babel fish in her ear and she can understand English and not only that but John Smith can understand Algonquin. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's some clever wind. you will understand. Listen with your heart, you will understand. Let it break upon you like a wave upon the sand. approaching it from from way too cynical a point of view let's Let's, say something nice let's resume and finish off this podcast talking about what pocahontas does right because i think we've basically laid it down and bashed its head in with uh, a ceremonial war club repeatedly uh and and we we do need to talk about what's good about it let's go back to the beauty and the actual if you divorce this from history and try yeah like i say not to think too hard about uh, that that aspect of it it is actually a really uh, lovely, sad um, romance. I think the songs are the best part of the movie. Agreed. Yeah, uh, it's agree. funny. The, the movie opens up. It says Pocahontas. And then the first opening credit after that with songs by Alan Menken. I think for me, the, uh, the positive elements of this, the setting is astounding mm-hmm. because for me, the whole, the, the natural world side of things, um, one thing I always fall for with Disney films is the backgrounds. It seems like such a, um, an unimportant element compared to uh, the, the foreground work and the character work and, and all of that, which you know, get so much effort, but especially watching the behind the scenes stuff and seeing how much effort they put into getting these, uh, these worlds right, but not distractingly perfect. 
Yeah. It has to be almost a character in and of itself because you have to believe it completely, otherwise it doesn't work. But if it's too clear and if it's too detailed, then people aren't paying attention to the story um, and the, the stuff that's going on in the front. So I think there's a real skill to putting these backgrounds together and actually being able to create um, uh, an environment properly. It's kind of and impressionistic, yeah. Absolutely, and I, I mean, I love impressionist art, so it's probably an extension of that. Um, but things like, uh, I, I mean, I already mentioned the forest in um, uh, Beauty and the Beast in the opening, and um, the the savannah, the way they managed to capture that in The Lion King. Mm. That's what gets me. Um, and that combined with the, there is something about the music in this one that soars in a way that I I don't always get captured by um, by Disney songs. There's a handful that for some reason I cannot sing, not because of inability, because, although I, I don't have a particularly amazing voice and I can't hit. Uh, top range notes usually if I just um, drop the register a little bit it's not a problem because but it over- overwhelms you emotionally absolutely there cracks. comes a point where my voice cracks and I just cannot continue without crying and uh, Colours of the Wind is one of them um, but frankly I tried to sing along with quite a few of them um, when we watched it today and it kept happening over and over again um, and Let It Go is another one that has that same quality about it there comes a point where it just something breaks in my throat and I can't go on. Yeah, it, it feels re- repetitive to say it at this point, but Minkins... <laughs> but Dude's a this is one of most Minkins. <laughs> this is one of Minkins' most beautiful scores and songwriting efforts. Like, whatever other misgivings I may have with other aspects of the film, I adore the music in this movie. Uh, Just Around the Riverbend would be her Howard Ashman I Want song. Although technically at this stage, he's not necessarily singing about I want to take the uh, unsteady course, as I mean, that, that becomes abundantly clear. It's more a sad acceptance that she's going to have to take the straight road. But there's a, a very wistful element to that one. I find the pair of directors on this film very interesting. because so you've got Mike two- Gabriel and Eric Goldberg. Uh, yeah, he was I the mean- one, man who uh, animated the genie in Aladdin. Yeah, and they're both animators. Uh, Mike Gabriel's the guy who directed uh, Rescuers Down Under beforehand, oh. and uh, and Eric Goldberg being the is of, see Goldberg is the weird fit because this is not his kind of animated film at all. I mean, he is Aladdin is his kind of speed. He's a cartoony, gag heavy animator. Oh, Jesus, if you look at the Pocahontas on Wikipedia, where when it says based on, it says an idea by Mike Gabriel. <laughs> As opposed to real life events. You know, everyone knows that Pocahontas and John Smith didn't have a romantic relationship. What my film presupposes is maybe they did. There are some leaves that continually flow about throughout the movie. Mm. And as I was watching it over the week, I really wanted to find what those things meant, what the leaves were. And I mean, you know, I'm sure it's up for interpretation, but I came down to it represented 
uh, Pocahontas's impression on the people around her and her desire for for balance and understanding. I think that fits actually because you've got these um, sort of slightly mystical symbols that show up in the leaves um, and you've got the leaves themselves are obviously representative of, of the the natural world that she's such a big part of but also the the wind that you only see because the leaves are there is the the part of her that wants to be moving on they also happen to be the colors of the wind <laughs> yes yeah because it all merged when she the, the bit in the song where she turns into um paint streaks yeah. It's, the, it's similar colours as have been in those that little leaf pattern, isn't it? That, that one shot blows my mind. Yeah, it's my favourite shot. This is actually a very transportive film for me because while I didn't actually see it in 95, when I should have done, uh, I saw it in 96 on, on video afterwards, I heard the music repeatedly on the radio at this age. And when you're 15, you're just on the cusp of being able to go out and do things for yourself. So I was just in that kind of waiting stage. While it's not necessarily tied in with my time then, it's transportive of that time for me. So it always makes me, kind of starts me feeling emotionally overwhelmed when I start listening to the music anyway. It also reminds me of the last vacation I took with my father and sister, which was to uh, Orlando in uh, 1995 when uh, Disney were releasing Pocahontas to a great fanfare. So while we didn't see the film, we saw Pocahontas everywhere and we were staying at the wilderness campground at the time so very kind of like rustic american forest setting so all of these blend together into something that transcends the movie for me we should probably compliment disney for casting native american actors as yeah. Pocahontas and Powhatan, respectively, because until then, Disney has played it very fast and loose with ethnicity in their casting, regardless of story setting. Usually they will have maybe one character voiced by someone from the place the movie is set. They will have one French voice in Beauty and the Beast. I like that they made the effort this time around. I mean, despite all the other complaints about this film's portrayal of history and Native Americans, they do deserve some credit for that extra bit of attention paid mm. and that extra effort put in. And for taking some uh, time to actually do the, uh, the research. And uh, they, they live in houses rather than teepees, uh, <laughs> which, you know, there, there was this assumption that, uh, that I mean, a lot of these were caused by crappy movies uh, throughout the 20th century and TV and uh, comics. And all of these prejudices and, and assumptions about uh, Native Americans based on this, these you know, small scraps of misinformation. Uh, but yeah, no, they, li they lived in houses. And in fact, if anyone's living in tents, it's the sailors in this. Actually, markedly, uh, they're wearing, they're living in um, temporary accommodation. I actually met Irene Bedard once. Oh, wow. Jeez, what was she yeah. like? Uh, she was pretty cool. Uh, I, it was at the Comanche Nation Fair in Oklahoma. And uh, she had a booth set up. Uh, she was like the... Nice. the, the the guest star. She uh, has signed a lot of DVDs, including Smoke Signals, Pocahontas, and Spectacular Spider-Man Season 1. <laughs> oh, who was she? In, uh, was she? Jean DeWolf, one of the police. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, being much more of a Spider-Man fan, I, I talked to her a lot about Spectacular <laughs> Spider-Man, uh, that, then Pocahontas, and this was between season one and season two, the best time to be watching that show. Of course, yeah. So I was like, have they started season two yet? Are you, have you done things? She's like, um, they are still writing it. I'm getting called in maybe a month from now to come and record. So it was super cool. <laughs> nice. One thing that, that Lyra noticed, actually, while we were watching uh, this and Hunchback back-to-back, she pointed out that Esmeralda sounded like Pocahontas when she sang. Hmm. And I don't want to in any way criticize the singing voices or the speaking actresses of both roles, four different ladies. But unlike uh, Howard Ashman's songs where uh, Ariel and Belle um, sang and spoke, there's a sudden, tra- subtle transition to a different voice. If the point is that the person who's speaking can't do the singing, they need someone else to do that for them, there is a slight psychological disconnect. You're, you don't, may not even know it on the surface, but somewhere inside your brain is getting a different message because the person doing the singing hasn't embodied the character doing the speaking. It's like they enter a dream state where they're the, yeah. the, the person that they most want to be as they're, as they're singing. That's a good way of putting it, actually. Yeah, they become their ideal self who happens to have an exactly perfect singing voice, even though they're not necessarily channeling the same person exactly. There is a slight, as I say, disconnect. But it homogenizes them a little bit. If you get in a trained singer who can really hit those operatic notes, then there is a quality to things like Colors of the Wind, which are slightly less breathy, slightly less directly connected with the characters that we've seen speaking than, say, uh, Part of Your World. Or Belle. Those two floor me because they're really coming from the uh, actresses and those ladies are being um, uh, directed by Ashman himself at the time. I don't know how well it would have turned out if they'd gone, right, we're going to try to go for the operatic, but we're going to make the speaking actresses sing. Demi Moore, you better sing. If you can't sing, learn to sing. Or give the person who was singing the role of the uh, person doing the acting. Seriously. Yeah. I mean, maybe it was the fact that Irene Bedard, in her case, was was the Indian that they wanted to cast, and she just couldn't... you know, couldn't hit those notes. So that in their case, they would have been forced to to find a a singing actress. But yeah, in 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 Hunchback, they could have probably given uh, Esmeralda the the singing voice actual full role. There is always a slight disconnect. Well, when you're watching a Broadway musical, they don't suddenly tap Edina Menzel on the shoulder and say, "Right, that's that's enough from you with the singing, Edina." We obviously it's like, it's a completely different kettle of fish because it's voice work rather than actually being on stage. Uh, in Ashman's day, that's why they were pulling in a lot of stage people. Yeah, uh, Judy Benson, uh, that's, who was a voice as Belle. Jody Benson, Paige O'Hara. Uh, yeah, that's right. Those two, both of them, Broadway people, but yeah. and the type of people who can sing and perform beautifully, yeah. both. But it does speak a little bit of slightly less effort in terms of casting if they're looking for... I mean, really, the amount of uh, voice training that actors go through anyway, how hard is it really to look for an actor who can also sing? Unless you if have a very specific style of mind, that must really have limited them. In that particular instance, possibly, although I would still argue, 
although it may not have been the case in 1995, that how difficult is it to um, to widen your net a little bit and not just go, you know, take, look in a very small area and then claim that you couldn't find people who would fit that category however yes in that case i will accept that you know they wanted um, a native american actress to portray her and that was great it's a shame they couldn't find a native american actress who could also sing but again they had a very specific tone in mind for the song in live action films like la vie en rose wherein marianne cotillard playing edith piaf ended up lip-syncing to songs sung by emmanuel seigneur and piaf herself you get an obvious Milli Vanilli disconnect. Side note, this makes that song being in Inception with Marianne Cotillard going nuts even more meta and weird. And in films like La La Land and Mamma Mia, where the actors who aren't necessarily singers sing their own parts, it has that more rough and ready style that I find very appealing. I know you look so cute in your polyester suit. It's warm. You're right, I'd never fall for you at all. It doesn't matter if they aren't perfect singers, that imperfection feels real. Even if the musical itself is surreal. And then there's Les Miserables, where everybody sings everything, regardless of whether anyone can sing. Follow to the letter your itinerary. This badge of shame will show it till you die. It warns you're a dangerous man. Stole a loaf of bread. That uh, operatic style that um, the the lady who was doing the singing for Pocahontas achieved, Judy Kuhn, it sounded fantastic, but it again made Pocahontas seem that little bit more sculpted, that little bit more perfect, that little bit more unreal. Mm. I mean, and if you do it for for all ten main females over the course of ten years, you homogenise all mm, those songs. Indeed, I mean Irene Bedard has a lovely speaking voice. I would actually have been quite happy to hear her sing. As I recall, in Hercules, Susan Egan does her "I Won't Say I'm in Love" song. She sings that herself. Yep. My head is screaming, get a grip, girl. Unless you're dying to cry your heart out. And Susan Egan is a trained singer who had already portrayed Belle on stage in the Beauty and the Beast Broadway musical. I want adventure in the great wide somewhere. I want it more than I can tell. Well, Megger has got a very distinctive voice as well. Yeah. So, so it, That's the thing. If you can hear the character in the singing, that then becomes a really memorable song. That's not to say that Colors of the Wind is not a wonderful, memorable song, which it is. But there's that slight feeling that it's like, and now we segue to an absolutely perfect Broadway song, and we'll be back in a few minutes' time. The gold of Cortez, the jewels of Pizarro, will seem like mere trinkets by this time tomorrow. The gold we find here will dwarf them by far. Oh, with all you got in your boys, dig up Virginia boys, mine boys. Mine every mountain and dig, boys. Dig till you drop, grab a pig, boys. Quick, boys. Shovel in a shovel, uncover those lovely pebbles that sparkle and shine. It's gold and it's mine, mine, mine. Dig, 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 dig,
Hey, nonny, nonny, bitches for cheap. Hey, nonny, nonny, hey, nonny, nonny, there'll be heaps of it, and I'll be on top of the beat. My rival's back home. It's not that I'm bitter, but think how they'll squirm when they see how I glitter. The ladies of court will be all in Twitter. The king will reward me, he'll knight me. No, Lord, me, it's mine, mine, mine for the taking. It's mine, boys, mine me that gold with those nuggets, nuggets. Glory, they'll give me, my dear friend King Jimmy, will probably build me a shrine when all of the gold is mine. Searched for a land like this one A wilder, more challenging country I couldn't design Hundreds of dangers await And I don't plan to miss one In a land I can claim A land I can tame The greatest adventure is mine Keep on working, that's mine Don't be shirking, that's mine To dig, boys, but I've got this crick in my spine. This land we behold, this beauty of gold, a man can be born, it all can be sold. So yeah, that really was David Ogden Steers, and it really was Mel Gibson. Being a musical was huge in this decade because this is when Disney suddenly started doing this, and it's they started going wrong round about Tarzan when they brought in Phil Collins. When they stopped the characters themselves singing. Yeah, it does seem like there's a bit of a shift that happens here, kind of starting here at Pocahontas, and here it's understandable because again they're pulling from a much smaller casting pool. But from here, it seems like a lot more of the time they prioritize looking for a more known name to voice their characters. Yeah. A little Beginning bit more. with Demi Kev- Moore? Yeah, with Demi Moore and Kevin Klein, and, uh, and then going down, like, it, not, Bear in mind, not, not Tro- with every Toy film. Story had just come out, so Tim Allen and, and uh, Tom Hanks, everyone was like, I can't believe it. People who are famous doing animated films. Like, this was some sort company. of new thing. <laughs> we should start a company called DreamWorks. Exactly. Uh, I think uh, Katzenberg, well, the poster for Shrek it, that was up in cinemas was just Myers, Diaz, Murphy, Lithgow, and the, the actual pictures of the characters and said, look, come to see this film. All of you grown ups, you'll see car- people who have already made you laugh in other films. And this dude was in Cliffhanger. Speaking of which, this I think may be one of this may be the last Disney feature that Katzenberg was involved in before he uh, yeah, split. He walked. And, yeah. uh, and I, I understand that one of the last things he did as at the company was help to forge the Disney Pixar partnership, which basically building his company like his new company's greatest rival. Yeah, that's 
it's impossible to completely hate the guy if he does such wonderful things sometimes. That is that is the problem with examining Jeffrey Katzenberg's time at Disney. <laughs> he, well, this, this, is, this guy does so many wonderful things. This is why I think it's important to look at the, uh, the behavior rather than the person, because ultimately he achieved some great things. I'm still never going to agree with the man's methods. Mm-hmm. He may have been the one to decide to take out If I Never Knew You. Given his oh, yeah. predilection for satisfying test audiences, you may be right. He wanted to take out... Was it part of your world he was wanting to get rid of? Uh, yes, uh, yes, it was, because a kid yeah. was shifting uneasily in his seat, and uh, and he went, ah, the kid didn't care, so I didn't care. No, One child. You didn't care. Because you know, on that day, the Grinch's heart didn't grow an inch. Um, <laughs> okay, so if I never knew you, now from the sounds of it, Dan, you're not a fan, so tell us why. I think the song is lovely itself. I think um, if you inserted it back into the film, I think it stops the movie dead. Because I think everything that the song communicates about their connection, I think the 30 seconds of them briefly getting to exchange words before they're pulled apart again Ah. says all of the same stuff. So it's what Ashwin said about if you take a song out, uh, the film should no longer make sense. The film still does make sense. Ergo, it's not needed. It totally does. And if you add the song back in, beautiful though it still is, it is them having said the same things and then a very contained... And the intimate feel is nice, but it is still just the two of them staring into each other's eyes for three more minutes. And And remember this time when they ran through the meadow? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, and with flashback stuff cut in, basically just singing the song right there, saying the exact same thing they already said, and getting a lot more time with each other, which having them pulled apart again so quickly does kind of add a little bit of a... Uh, it, it keeps things going. So I think for in terms of pacing, I think the song being pulled out was a good call. You make a compelling argument, sir. While I don't disagree... With anything that you've said there, Dan, I think one thing it adds, which it, which would have really, maybe not completely, but would have changed my uh, perception of the film a bit, is that it humanises Smith, because he is very bland, and you learn very little about him. And ultimately, his... Well, hang on, you're saying that it would have changed your perception. You've only ever known the DVD version which uh, from 2005, which reinstated it. Oh, maybe you saw it on video before. I, I've seen it before mm. we got the um, the uh, reinserted version. I don't get why they reinstated it on DVD and then took it back out again on Blu-ray. <laughs> on Beauty and the Beast, you get to choose. Anyway, Karen. The bizarre thing will be if on the next format they put it back in. <laughs> and, <they really laughs> and don't give me the option of having it without. <laughs> now it's in, now it's out, and now well, you're really confused. There will be no next format, Dan. It'll just be a digital download. Remember, folks, this was recorded back in the distant past of 2014, during the waning years of the Obama administration, before 4K discs became a thing. Still waiting to get Pocahontas in 4K, of course. That's that's all. All they'll, streaming. They'll plug it straight into your head. You'll basically be able to subscribe to Disney and and uh, be able to watch any of their films, depending on the the level of subscription. You'll put on a mouse ears hat and won't be able to stream any movie. <laughs> from- <laughs> oh, speaking of which, thank you for the Goofy movie. I, it was great fun. You bet. Yeah. No, I. Oh, that movie's I, awesome. Lyra said it was her favorite movie ever in the world. I said, "What about Frozen?" She went, "Okay, second favorite." After <laughs> what about the Lego Fair movie? Enough. Okay, third favorite after the Lego movie. Now <laughs> you have to watch the extremely goofy movie. Really? Is that the next that, one? Yeah. Well, she I've she absolutely it. loved it. For me, it was a weird time trip back to the mid nineties again. Oh, it totally is. It is yeah. more nineties than the nineties ever were. <laughs> <laughs> but it's 
yeah, as a touching little kind of surprising little father son mm-hmm. story, though, I yeah. I really love it. It was neat. Great. Hang on, where were we? Um, singing. Humanizing John Smith. Humanizing John Smith. He never really does anything that convinces me that he's not exactly the same person. Number of words that I cannot say in this podcast. Um, Total jerk. Yes, indeed. I mean, the 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 line that kind of sums him up until that song for me is when um, he says something to Pocahontas about um, her people being savages and they're here to basically show them how to live properly. And she stands up with a very indignant look on her face, a very restrained response, I might add, starts to walk away. And his reaction is, well, don't take it like that. How's she meant to take it? You're taking this all wrong or something along those lines. Exactly. Basically blaming her for his either, at best, a very poor expression of the point he's trying to make. At worst, an incredibly narrow-minded view of what constitutes being able to live well. Um, But there's nothing (laughs) really... you just don't know yet. There's nothing really that happens um, after that that causes me to change my opinion of him. Mm. Okay, John Smith. Should we talk about the character of John Smith? I will. I will start. Preface this by uh, just mentioning the song. I agree, Sharon. I actually think that this should have been in there simply because it shows John Smith is vulnerable at this point. It's one thing to be strapped to a post, nobly awaiting your execution. It's another to softly sing a song about how your world has changed to a woman. Not just say it in a sort of a heroic, manly, you know, shirt open way, but sing it. In that soft little... T- is it actually Mel Gibson singing? It is, yeah. It is. Oh, well, there you go. You actually get to hear big, strapping, heroic Mel Gibson singing, and not really all that fantastically, which makes it better. That is Seriously. true. There is no vulnerability from that character at any other no. point in the film. He is Zap Brannigan the whole way through without the irony. And like he's just got these cat-like reflexes, and he's so heroic, and everybody loves him, and he's fantastic. And then Pocahontas meets him and immediately falls in love with him because that's how gorgeous and wonderful he is. Vulnerable is good for this character. He needs to basically show that there is more to him than just, I came in, I slightly understand a bit more about this, but now they're going to bash my head in with a rock. Ah, well, I'll do it for England, which is so boring. So yeah, I you know this this song is definitely what people could describe as cheesy. It's off-putting to a lot of other people, but to a degree, the same test audience would say no to "My Heart Will Go On" from Titanic, which again may people may cause people to erupt in fits of nausea, but it sure as hell sold that film to a hell of a lot of people. I think if they'd left this song in there, it may have felt like more of an event and may have actually touched people on a different level. It's It puts its soul out there. It doesn't actually hide that because we don't want to go full Broadway musical. Because that's the thing, when... For the second verse, and I'm so grateful to you, she starts singing along with him, and then she sings up and he sings down. That's what they do in Broadway musicals. They join and they harmonise. That happens so rarely throughout the Disney Renaissance that they needed more of those songs to just put their hearts out there. It doesn't always have to fit into exactly the right tone of the movie. And it is and it is and would have been awkward and it doesn't need to be in there. But I actually think it strengthens it in exactly the same way as When Love Is Gone, which was cut from the Muppets Christmas Carol for the exact same reasons. It was making that, children too melancholy. That one kills me. Yeah. Yep. A pop version of the song. It's at the end of the credits. Um, and if when love is gone, <laughs> yeah, 
when if the gone. voice actors of the actual movie, if they just left left those two singers to do the song as if it were in the movie, and then that was put for the credits. Yeah, I think I think that would be fine there because it kind of you're 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 leaving the movie. John Smith is going and Pocahontas is staying, and then you have that song to to think about, and then that's just their thoughts as as the movie ends, which makes the movie seem more final. Like I was nitpicking earlier, so I, I think it's fine where it is if they just had normal not '90s singers. <laughs> Good point. But you yeah, it's you, very nice. You make a very good argument for the song going back in, too. Like, so I like. <laughs> well, no, you made a very good argument for it being taken out. Your technical reasons absolutely sound. And but I your think dramatic it's fine and emotional it reasons. <laughs> this is the best kind of argument. I agree with you. I agree with you. And let's not agree at all. <laughs> you, know, you know, it's a lot harder to compliment Mel Gibson than it used to be. Yeah. yeah. Did I, I say want... anything to you, Sugar <laughs> But I do want to at least say he has a very good voice for animation. Well, he took direction from Eric Goldberg, so at least we'll give him that. I mean, this character could have been absolutely flat, but there's a little bit of Gibson's charm in there, and he can be a, a, a roguish type of guy, and they could have made him... I mean, he doesn't really get any good lines, does he? He doesn't... Not really. There, the, there's, the, there's not much to him. He's just strapping and square-jawed and boring. What was that? <laughs> My compass. Compass? It tells you how to find your way when you get lost. But it's all right. I'll get another one in London. London? Is that your village? Yes. It's a very big village. What's it like? Well, it's got streets filled with carriages, bridges over the rivers, and buildings as tall as trees. I'd like to see those things. You will. How? We're going to build them here. We'll show your people how to use this land properly, how to make the most of it. Make the most of it? Yes. We'll build roads and decent houses and... Our houses are fine. You think that, only because you don't know any better. Wait a minute. Don't take it that Hey, hey. Wait. Wait, wait. There's so much we can teach you. This film does come off as very naive in retrospect. But Disney are pushing forwards. They're more progressive now than they were 20 years ago. They will be more progressive in 20 more years when they own everything. So I suppose it's baby steps. Because the internet is awash with criticisms of Disney during this period, and in fact everything from our childhoods, which was conceived at a less aware time. And that's healthy and that's important. We should look at the work of our fathers and mothers and say we can do better and we can be better. What's also important to bear in mind is that we don't necessarily have to destroy the work of our fathers and mothers. There are still things to learn and appreciate, and if we had to start over from scratch each time, we'd be doomed to make the same mistakes they did. So yeah, burn it all to the ground, but don't forget it. Going back to history, John Smith was somebody who was hated among his crew. I can't remember exactly why he was there on the ship. I think it was because somebody told him to or because he was being punished for something. Whatever it is, I'm willing to put wave after wave of men at your disposal. Right, men? You suck! He was hated among his crew because he was the one kind of forced to be their leader because you had people like uh, Radcliffe who said, just lays around, there's gold on the floor. And then John, 
John Smith realized that there wasn't, and in fact, they had to work very hard in order to make a village and whatever to live and to thrive. Kiff, show them the medal I won. <sighs> he wasn't respected, and then he came into respect to which a See, lot that's of people. That's a story. That's... Exactly. That's that's <laughs> conflict. That's imagine so... a imagine the Disney movie called Jamestown, which had a twelve year old Pocahontas, a, a roguish person who comes to lead a town, and then it's about these evil people trying to beat John Smith, who's sided with the Indians. I'm there totally. I'm all over that one. Okay. What would so... they What would they call this movie now if it came out? Would James... they call it Winded? Winded. <laughs> 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 you just get that. No, no, I, I got it the first time, but it's doubly funny. Okay, but we can at least talk about David Ogden Steers as Wes and Percy. I've always liked David Ogden Steers before I knew he was even David Ogden Steers. Um, he's got this wonderful quality to his voice, which is, it, it's, how best to put it? There is a roundness to it? Yes. Yeah. yeah, it's it's Stop. almost like an echo. It, I don't want to say hollow because that makes it sound <coughs> empty. But there's a, um, yeah, round covers it. Just the intro to Beauty and the Beast is the most amazing thing I have ever heard in my life. If he could learn to love another and earn their love in return by the time the last petal fell, then the spell would be broken. If not, he would be doomed to remain a beast for all time. So yeah, he, he's the narrator for that. He's also um, the archdeacon in uh, uh, Hunchback. the innocent blood you have spilled on the steps of Notre Dame. I am guiltless, she ran, I pursued. He was also, most notably and possibly why I think he's so round in, in his, his presence, Jumba, who is basically an enormous, squishy, not even squishy, no, an enormous ball of an alien from Lilo and Stitch. I suppose, yeah, he does Russian scientist very well as well. We believe you actually created something. Created something? Ah, but that would be irresponsible and unethical. I would never, ever make more than one. There's sort of a weird, almost whimsicalness to his delivery in this movie in particular that I really love. That like he delivers some lines in a very strange way, but completely owns them. Like the the one line he has from Radcliffe that I particularly love is it basically ends with something success success will be mine at last. That's a weird read. But he makes it completely sound right. He voices two characters in this movie, right? Yeah. Um, I think that he does an amazing job as as both of those characters. Uh, you have to constantly interact, by the way. Percy hardly right. talks to anyone else but Ratcliffe. Coincidentally, it shows the duality of their relationship. Mm. Yes. Well, he then you have so that... well recommended. Yes, I was just going to say you have that wonderful <laughs> moment at the end. Yeah. In in the cast listing, Danny Mann as Percy comes above Billy Connolly. Imagine that, losing to a dog who doesn't even speak, or coming second to a dog who doesn't even speak. But yeah, uh, Radcliffe's um, uh, two standout moments, really, are the Savages song and the Gold song. Because the Gold song, it, it's an I want song, but it's so ludicrous. It's, I mean, especially, this is the point where if you know a bit of history, it makes it so much funnier and like, but at the same time, blackly humorous 
because he's convinced himself it's going to be brilliant over here. And it's all for these pathetic, selfish means. And you, you, just, you can tell what a joke he is back uh, in England and how you know, ridiculously self-important he is. And they've deliberately animated him uh, to be very barrel-chested. Originally, he was going to have a great big fat tummy. But they, they made him more threatening by putting it all in this pompous big chest up here. So um, when he sings the gold of Pizarro, it's like he, he sort of like um, fingers his chest at this point and uh, it, 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 it just it becomes lost in the grandeur of thinking about how wonderful his life is going to be as a result of this and how much um, praise will be showered upon him for doing nothing, really, for making people dig for this imaginary gold. They, that's also the song where they uh, nuke trees. Yes. <laughs> that bothers me so much. Yeah. It's like it, it's very cartoonish as well. Like they're, they're shooting them down with cannon and they're all falling down obligingly. It's, it's ridiculous. Where were they keeping the explosives? Yeah. It's a lot of explosives for one boat. But this is the same boat where basically John Smith's like, hey, I'm going to pop open this barrel here and just spray the decks with wine. And it's like, yeah, of course, we're not going to need that on our long sea voyage. (laughs) Just pour it all over the deck. Well done, John. Good for you. Magic school bus meet magic boat. And also another crewman, Christian Bale. Yeah, I noticed that. Playing young Thomas. I think he may be the dumbest character in the entire film. There's the point where he comes in and goes, John Smith's been taken, and nothing else happened. Uh, wait a second. You slaughtered a Native American warrior in a situation that you could have controlled simply by yelling out to him and warning him instead, and you, that never gets mentioned. Even the, even the, uh, the tribe, when they, they run across them, don't say, he killed... What can you expect from filthy little heathens? Their whole disgusting race is like a class. Their skins are hellish red. They're only good when dead. They're vermin, as I said, and worse. They're savages, savages. They're even human. Savages, savages. Drive them from our shore. They're not like you and me. Which means they must be evil. We must stop the problems of war. They're savages, savages, dirty redskin devils. Now we sound the problems of war. This is what we feared. The pale face is a demon. The only thing they feel at all is greed. We need that milky hide. There's emptiness inside. I wonder if they even bleed. They're savages, savages. Barely even human. Savages, savages. Killers at the core. They're different from us, which means they can't be trusted. We must sound the drums of war. They're savages, savages. First we deal with this one, then we sound the drums of war. Let's go kill a few men. Savages, savages. Now it's up to you, man! Savages, savages, and even human, now we sound the drums! Oh, 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 o
That wasn't quite what I meant, actually. What I said was, this is what happens when you forget you're an animal. I know, but I extrapolated from that. We're all animals. We all have a place in the world. The men, when they start hacking down these trees in excess, are forgetting their place in the world. They're not living in harmony. Now, this is not necessarily me getting out my hippie drum and saying we should all love each other and hug trees. There's excess and wrecking forests when you don't need to is excessive and it's forgetting what you, your responsibility lies in. And Percy is, is simply the, uh, the, the example of the, the 1% at the top living in absolute disgusting opulence while everybody else is starving and working. I think it was quite neatly summed up in asking Lyra what gold can be used for. And the only thing she could come up with was to buy things with. Nice. I love the corn, like, fake out that Pocahontas does. Mm. Oh, you mean our food. (laughs) The important thing that we have that is shiny. I'm just going to go back to the waterfall scene, as I mentioned before. This might actually be my favourite few moments of the uh, movie. It, it kind of everything else about the movie is is uh, and the story before and after is forgotten, as these two people are basically engaged across the uh, the water. And I think one of the things I like best about it is that you get to hear the sound of the waterfall, and just everything else just disappears outwards, and then just very thin strings come in playing the "If I Never Knew You" very uh, quietly, and they just stare at each other. And then the story proceeds apace and she runs away and he runs after her. It's almost like they could have done a big chunk of the movie silent, uh, and especially if they were learning each other's language and actually learning to communicate with each other. Terence Malick did a film called The New World, which deals a lot with... Um, it's the same story, but it's three hours long and it's a lot of a lot of this kind of staring at each other and lots of um, wonderful magic hour photography uh, and dreamlike whimsical uh, scenarios I could have done with a lot more of this and a lot less of the raccoon and the dog and the bird again wouldn't that have worked better in terms of them learning to communicate with each other than just closing their eyes thinking real hard (laughs) you know suddenly magically understanding English and you say about all of a sudden he understands Algonquin that I didn't see a lot of evidence of that (laughs) she speaks English the whole time I said Algonquin during the podcast, but apparently languages and interpreters in early Virginian Indian society uh, spoke dialects of Algic, Iroquoian, and Siouan. Apparently there were more than 800 indigenous languages in North America. So yeah, listen with your heart, you will understand, but also bring an interpreter. I believe the original intent, or originally when they were creating the waterfall scene, there were lines there, but they just started kind of finding that just pulling them out and and having some silence there was so much more effective and I, I feel like that was a realization they had a lot of the time working on this that doing a bit less was more and, and animation as well because unlike a caricatured human character animation getting a realistic human that kind of acting animation requires an extremely subtle, delicate touch with very small changes in expression that mean a whole lot. And, and it requires a whole lot of contained stillness. And it's, I, think, I think it's something that actually 3D animation lends itself to far more naturally as a tool because that kind of subtlety is much easier to control when you don't have the wavering, tiny imperfection lines of several drawings 
feeding into each other that aren't quite consistent or perfect. So those, so they cover a lot of that tiny subtlety. But seeing it done right in a traditional format where it's extremely challenging is very impressive. Grandmother Willow. What is my path? How am I ever going to find it? <laughs> Your mother asked me the very same question. She did? What did you tell her? I told her to listen. All around you are spirits, child. They live in the earth, the water, the sky. If you listen, they will guide you. I hear the wind. Yes. What is it telling you? I don't understand. Quekwenotora, you will understand. Listen with your heart, you will understand. It's important that Pocahontas had guidance from someone less involved with her tribe and not at all involved with John's, and whose remit was keeping a balance. Sort of a broader level view. Yeah, that's probably the best way of putting it. Iroh. Yeah, yeah, Uncle Iroh. I was comparing Grandmother Willow to the character from Princess and the Frog who they go to to try to find the cure. Mama O.D. Right. Um, I thought that those two were very similar because they go to her to find the wisdom that they need to solve the problem. And I was thinking, well, how could they apply that to Pocahontas to make the movie seem more realistic and grounded in history? And I came to the decision that if she was like an outcast member of the tribe who was kicked out because her views were too controversial. Um, and Pocahontas, maybe maybe it was her grandma, like Alex mentioned earlier, uh, went yeah. to, would go to visit her uh, and, and, and talk to her still. I, I think if, if they just did Grandmother Willow like that, it would have kept the movie more grounded in, in history and reality. She's a perfect crone character, actually. You've got the the um, the triangle of maiden mother crone in this because you've got Grandmother Willow. Pocahontas is obviously the maiden. And her mother, although she is not there, is an ever-present force um, that... that guides her decisions and, and obviously is represented by the um, uh, by the necklace. So I think you've got that very strong uh, mythological feminine trinity which adds something to it for me. And the Savages song, while I, uh, like I said uh, if you start to think about this historically, is deeply troubling as a stance to take they're not just as bad as each other the virginia company are trespassing on the land of the indigenous tribes intent on stripping away its resources they are a parasite and the tribes have every right to repel them nevertheless this song has a uh, a classic broadway style to it it's very similar in tempo i think i even made this comparison to um the kill the beast song from beauty and the beast in terms of uh, of how it flows, and it's a very kind of you know the the machine of war is marching on again. It's overly simplifying a very shades of grey, very ugly, very historical and far-reaching situation. But in terms of getting across the basic premise of prejudice leading to conflict to children, this actually does hit the mark. This will be the day. Let's go, then! This will be the morning. Bring out the prisoner. 
I think the song is very exciting uh, in, in terms of the movie and its plot. Uh, visually, it is it's awesome, um, and it, it just gets you all all uh, excited for what is about to happen. And then that is brilliantly got the rug from under you when Pocahontas just comes in and tells everybody to stop. Uh, you said something earlier, Sharon, about um, this is my last point, really. That, that what, the failing of this film is effectively that it's trying to please too many masters. Yeah, I think so. I mean, the, the, they've tried to go for something that that has historical threads through it, but it's not committed enough to that premise to satisfy the people who want historical accuracy. It's trying to uh, evoke a traditional Disney romantic relationship, but it's not committed enough to that premise to satisfy the people who would come to see a Disney movie looking for that. And I think they also weave in this sort of um, social commentary side of things, but it's not committed enough to that to even sell it on those grounds. So it's really trying to tick... Or the way it comes across to me is that they're trying to tick too many boxes and not having the courage of the convictions sufficiently about any one of them to really put it strongly in that camp. Yeah. That's a good way of summing it up, I think, actually. It's easy looking back to see why so many Disney staff thought Pocahontas would be the company's next prestige project when they were choosing between this and Lion King, especially because on paper this seems like so much more of a big grand thing. Beauty and the Beast's Oscar nomination had them riding high and they were making not only now a string of commercially successful massive blockbuster hits, but now they're reaching levels of critical and cultural acclaim like Disney never has before. And everything about Pocahontas looks like it's going to be the next one in that line, pushing it even further. From the setting to the sort of real-life historical folklore figure, the dramatic tone... And everyone in the studio would want to be a part of this. But it does seem like to reach that level of prestige, just just the fact that it is a real-life historical setting complicates things enough that there are suddenly a lot of different people that they have to, a lot of different camps that they have to kind of please or at least address. And like Sharon said, they got pulled in a lot of different directions but couldn't fully commit to one. And it's a shame, really, but but to reach those levels of prestige that they were hoping to hit takes commitment. It takes dedication. It takes, ironically enough, doing something for the love of what you're doing, not because you think it's going to be prestigious. Yeah. Reading here that uh, a lot of critics were upset uh, that... Uh, after Pocahontas had basically thrown herself down to prevent uh, um, Smith being killed and in doing so to prevent war, 
see, seeming that she has her eye on both the small picture and the big picture. John Smith then leaps in front of a bullet and prevents um, uh, the, the death of uh, Poetan. Critics complain that this took away from uh, the acts of a single brave heroine, a female heroine, which was a rarity at the time. It it didn't happen as often. Like, um, remember we were talking about Little Mermaid and uh, Ariel had her moment and then suddenly Prince Eric basically has to save the day because Ariel is reduced to a thing on the bottom of the ocean. I disagree with that because, oh, yeah? right, first of all, if John Smith had leapt in front of a bullet to save Pocahontas, mm -hmm. then perhaps if he'd behaved throughout the film in a manner that suggested that he was given to such impulsive flights of... Um, Superheroism. Uh, yeah, then maybe. However, the way I read that is she inspired him. Yeah. She that gave yeah, him okay. the impetus to do that, to protect her father for her sake. And he learned that's uh, evidence of his arc then. Exactly. It, it, it's the leaves from the colors of the wind uh, metaphor. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think if you're looking to criticize aspects of, you don't have to look very far to <laughs> criticize certain things of this film. You really don't have to dig. Dig <laughs> and, like and dig and dig and dig and dig. So I think we'll leave Pocahontas there, sadly standing on a rock. The the, the bit where the the ship uh, takes off at the end and uh, and she she runs after it is a wonderful moment, and it is analogous with a lot of uh, romantic comedy dramas or situations where someone has run after someone's plane and ended up standing waiting and watching it go away. It's it, it feels like something that that crosses the centuries to actually become relevant to us now. Many of us will have done the whole run to watch someone leaving on a train or leaving on a plane. Uh, it humanises the film. So yeah, although it is objectionable in the naivety in the way it presents uh, the a very vast and complex story and cuts it off at a point where it's like, oh, it's kind of bittersweet about this when there's so much more going on there. I suppose it could have been a whole lot worse. And it's technical achievements and emotional achievements as well, because it's not just that it presents you with a perfect mathematical, technical uh, marvel of animation. It does actually get to people on an emotional sense. And you, you kind of have to maybe not switch off your brain, but maybe switch off the part of your brain that um, I suppose you have to put yourself back in time and observe it in the moment with which it actually occurred, as opposed to looking at it through the fog of history. Yeah, if you can divorce it from its historical context and all the baggage that that brings and attaches to it, then it is still a very simple, naive film and, and uh, lesson that it's trying to get across. But uh, there's a lot still there to enjoy if you're able to, if you are able to make that separation in your mind. I do wonder that you mentioned it. What would happen if this was released today as winded? How different it would be? Yeah, it would be interesting. I'm not putting anybody on a moral plane. What I'm saying is this. You had a group on one side and you had a group on the other and they came at each other with clubs and it was vicious and it was horrible and it was a horrible thing to watch. But there is another side. There was a group on this side that came violently attacking the other group. So you can say what you want, but that's the way it is. Very fine people on both sides.
personally, I'm not too keen on the argument of you have to switch your brain off to to do this or. You well, know. no, not switch your whole. No, brain. no, no. I no, no, no. I know. But there's a part of my brain that needs to be shushed. Yeah, but, <laughs> that's where I'm putting it. But I would say that there are um, different people have different elements of their brains that can be shushed easily, and um, ultimately, that. if you're the kind of if if you're if what appeals to you are the elements that this film does well and there are many of them um, and that can counter uh, the part of you that might be picking the holes in it then it's more likely to be able to carry uh, the good points that it makes picking holes sounds finicky I object to it on many levels there's okay. a difference fair enough being distracted from the good by the things that you dislike <laughs> I object overruled you're being finicky and picking holes I have a question for you guys. Yeah. Pocahontas is obviously wearing lipstick. Where does she find it? She uses the ruby red berries, the cranberries that she finds in her native hedgerows. I was thinking, yeah, she just eats a lot of fruit. (laughs) Hence how she manages to maintain that svelte figure of hers. How come Miko is not rotund? And why is he out during the day? Good question. <laughs> Just as a little bit of Disney animation history for where the company is right now, uh, they're pretty much at their production peak because in 1985, Disney had like maybe 170 artists employed kind of just at the tail end of their really low period. Uh, 1995, around this time, 10 years later, they've got 1,200 people. And they've got multiple studios full of artists from California to Florida to Paris, hard at work on these big features. Disney's also producing a bunch of other animated films from other people now, like uh, Tim Burton's Nightmare Before Christmas and uh, smaller projects like a Goofy movie. And most of the other huge features of the Renaissance are already in development at this point because now they're coming out with these things every year. So they'll have like five going on at once. And the company's also expanding rapidly around now, too. That Disney's buying ABC. Disney.com is just being created. The company's had several periods of rapid expansion, and this right around the highest point of the Renaissance is where a lot of that's happening as well. They're also building, like, ex- building an expansion to Disneyland called California Adventure. So there's a lot going on for the Disney company right now, and I haven't looked ahead yet to see, but I wonder how far that carries through as these next couple of films start to plummet in uh, revenue. Sales, yeah. Because this is after The Lion King that it started to subside. Possibly because people... There are many reasons that we could speculate on, uh, but the fact that Toy Story really took the world by storm was one of them. And we've already talked Toy Story in a previous episode of Digital Gonzo. It could be argued, and I wouldn't be one of the people making this argument because I disagree with it on a fundamental level, but Jeffrey and his theory that artists only work if you starve them. (laughs) It's a good theory? That at this point they were swinging back towards the being slightly bloated and slightly too well rewarded for their time and effort. Well, if they're slightly bloated and too well rewarded and what we get are Hercules, Mulan, Tarzan, then I suppose, yeah, okay. this, yeah, this, no. Well, like I said, this is not necessarily something that I would agree with, but um, they are still a good long way from the complacent years yet. Just because regular audiences didn't respond well to Hercules doesn't make it any less of a brilliant movie for me. That is very true. Yeah, like, I, it's hard to 
place any of the blame necessarily on the artists because you we see they end up doing some incredible work still on the rest of the films coming but there is definitely something that happens when a company or studio gets comfortable and right around four or five films into the renaissance they have a lot of reasons to be feeling very very comfortable and you see it because they're making uh, they're following a very rigid formula now yeah they the broadway musical formula has treated them very well and they're going to keep following it until it seems to stop working and then maybe deviate from it a little but not completely rock the boat and it's that formula is just not going to hold out for them i think i think we're also seeing like other companies like even pixar i think is having a bit of trouble right now just because they've gotten a bit comfortable and they're scared of breaking what they have and that is it for pocahontas if you're not already subscribed to dan's channel extra credits you absolutely need to do that today you can find out all about hiawatha co-founder of the iroquois confederacy and dozens of other important people and events on the absolutely stunning series extra histories which brings the past to life in a way i wish i had had access to in school Many thanks to our wonderful special patrons. Joel Robinson, Abel Savard, Sarah Montgomery, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, Jameis Enright, Mark Lush, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, David Garcia Abril, Kieran Datchler, and Lorraine Chisholm. We will be back next week with The Hunchback of Notre Dame. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And... School's School's out. out. scrapes than this. Can't think of any right now, but... It would have been better if we'd never met. None of this would have happened. Pocahontas, look at me. I'd rather die tomorrow than live a hundred years without knowing you. 
That's how you start a movie trailer. (laughs) 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 When he was originally signed on. uh, Whoa. Jesus Christ. Is that the TARDIS coming in? (laughs) 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 Oh, goodness. What is it? Seriously. I think that's, yeah, there's a car outside.